might be a Viking or a Saxon or a Roman, but tell me, do you like them? Would you sex them? Would you bone them? Would you go to bed with King Ethelred? Would you bunk William the Conqueror up in the sheets with Samuel Pepys? Mussolini was a meanie, led a fascist insurrection, but does he make you creamy? Does he give you an erection? Would you pork Richard the Duke of York? Does a boner start when you think of Bonaparte? Are you sexually aroused at the thought of Pol Pot? Historical hot or not? Hello and welcome to Historical Hot or Not, the history podcast that staffs the Monastery of History with the Friars of Filth and the Monks of Mirth. My name is Aidan McCaffrey, I am not a historian, and this is... Catherine Mather, and I am also not a historian, but we are comedians who are horny for history, and today we are joined by a wonderful guest, Meryl O'Rourke. How are you doing? Hello, I am also not a historian. Is it an historian? I think posh people say an historian, don't they? Further evidence that we are not historians, (laughs) that we are not even saying the, the grammar of a historian properly. So this is quite dark, uh, old time internet to bring in this early into an episode but do you remember there was that kid who died and someone had written like in the you know they have the flowers outside the school and shit yeah someone had written he was an hero and (laughs) and everyone that is like still internet um mockery now of this poor child grieving his friend for saying an hero instead of a hero. Poor guy. That's so British. It is, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) It is so British that our sense of snobbery would override our sense of compassion. For (laughs) a child grieving. An actual child actually grieving. So I guess what I'm saying is I don't want to be on the wrong side of a historian and historian. (laughs) We are about to launch into into Nazi Germany's sexuality, but we'll get cancelled for um, <laughs> saying a historian. Yeah, no, it'd be fine if I'd have, um, well, if, if me or you had assaulted somebody. We could keep going. We could keep our yeah. prayers for that. But um, God forbid. <laughs> God forbid we put a stray end somewhere or an apostrophe. <laughs> AJP Taylor would be rolling in his grave, or as we call him on this podcast, Ann JB Taylor. <laughs> For the uninitiated, Meryl O'Rourke, our guest today, is a stand-up comedian and writer. She has written for Have I Got News For You, 8 Out of 10 Cats, Mock the Week, Room One or More, fucking shitloads more TV that you will have seen. She is a close collaborator with Frankie Boyle, and she is a self-described lewd mink, which makes her (laughs) the perfect guest for this bawdy-ass podcast. Meryl, uh, do you see yourself as more one than the other? Uh, More as a comedian, more as a writer, more as a lewd minx? I guess they're all in one big ball now. I see myself more as a comedian because I like performing more than writing. Um, but writing has uh, kept me alive. <laughs> you get paid more for writing. Well, it depends who hires you, but you get paid more for writing. And I do tend to think in my experience that comedians either tend to be uh, people who want to be on stage and have to write so they've got something to say, or people who write and go on stage so that people hear their writing. And I'm very much the former. I'm very much a show-off. And yes, I have been writing with Frankie for 15 years, and he has spent a lot of that time telling me that I should concentrate on the writing, which considering (laughs) I'm supporting him tonight, yeah, I do get very paranoid (laughs) about whether he actually enjoys my (laughs) stand-up. 
Well, that would sound so much more damning if he wasn't re- repeatedly asking you to open for him. Because if he's doing that, he must like you as a performer. He, d- he did go through my set almost line by line yesterday. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that was flattering. And it's, it's kind of the only time he's done that, actually. So maybe I'm hitting a correction. <laughs> but I think it's more that he he is very much a writer who performs when he's filled a book full of writing. And he constantly says that he hates performing despite the fact he's in the middle of a, I think it's over a year he's been doing this particular show, touring, which really surprises me. But it's because um, when he decides, like he's retired many times and he decides to retire and then he just keeps writing jokes and eventually he gets a full book and he has to do them. And of course our TV show's been cancelled as well, so he has to do them somewhere. (laughs) See, when people say that about being a writer, or a performer, I was thinking, which would I be? I think I'm neither. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is troubling. <laughs> you don't even consider yourself a podcaster and you have two of them. What, what do you consider yourself, Kath? Because I really like the admin and nobody ever says, are you a writer, mm. a performer, or do you just really enjoy emailing people for spots and filling <laughs> in MailChimp forms? Yeah, I'm quite good at that bit. Yeah. I spend most of my time on the admin booking side. I find writing difficult because it takes me forever to get an idea from idea to complete joke. And then I like the performing, but I think it's the places that you get sent to sometimes, isn't it? And you're just like, why am I here? Why am I doing this? (laughs) I was thinking you were going to say that was what you were in it for, the travelling. Yeah, Yeah, I just love being on a train. (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen a comedian, the documentary with Jerry Seinfeld? No. There's a the guy in that called um, Orny Adams, and and he's like the equivalent of us organization comedians in 2002. But because it's pre-smartphone, he's he's VHSing every gig he does. So his bedroom is like a library of himself, uh, and then he's got like these folders and binders of every joke he's ever written. And it comes across as insane, like he's a total sociopath. But I sort of think, oh, that's I do that. It's just that modern technology allows me to do it all on like a smartphone. So it doesn't. I don't seem insane. I don't look like I've got a shrine to myself the way he has. But he's just taking it seriously, I guess, in the way we are. The labelled bottles of piss is weird, though. <laughs> <laughs> Kath, I'm not leaving this room. I'm having my food brought to me. And these bottles of piss are staying. That, that, those are my <laughs> conditions of living. Uh, Meryl, I read in an interview you did in uh-huh. 2014. So I like to know <laughs> <laughs> Is this a historical bit? You're not wrong. That's why they call this a historical podcast. <laughs> in the interview, you chastised yourself for not doing more politics in your sets. I was doing that last night. See, there we go. Things never change. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Well, I was going to ask that. Listeners, I don't really know Meryl, but we sometimes interact on Twitter. Um, you sort of have become quite political on Twitter. But I was wondering, is that because you want to be or is it because on Twitter it's quite hard not to get drawn into culture wars by dickheads, which seems to be what's happened to you in the last six months. And you don't want to talk about this. We don't have to. Um, Yeah, but am I funny when I'm talking about politics on Twitter? And that's the key thing. I'm sarcastic Ah. and I can be snippy. It's making it funny in a way that translates on stage. Um, So... Like when you go around the country, I think there's a bit of a myth. A lot of people think audiences are too stupid for politics. Uh, But actually, if you go into somebody's pub in the middle of a village and they all know each other and then you walk in and you don't know them and they don't know you and you go, so this is why I hate the government that you voted for. They're actually a bit like, don't come and tell me what I think. 
don't don't tell me yeah. what I should and shouldn't think because you are just a stranger who I have employed to make me laugh. That's one reason I don't do politics. It's not a, it's not a concerted effort not to. Um, I do write jokes about politics. The things that stay in my set are the things that are consistently funny and that I can do from one club to another. Um, and some clubs, they've got their scampi in a basket and they don't really want to think about things or have to have common references. I mean, like with... I was I was writing jokes every time the Tory Prime Minister changed recently, and then it just got silly because it was like <laughs> I've got a really lovely set about Liz Truss, and now she's gone, and I can only do those oh, jokes no. for a little bit more. Um, which I think is why, if, if if you notice on the circuit, pretty much every comic has still got a COVID routine, um, mm-hmm. and the audience is clearly just sitting there going, "It's over, mate. It's over." <laughs> yeah, those Liz Trust jokes, you really had to get that Netflix special within a 49 day window mm-hmm. yeah. for them to have been relevant in any way. And that's always been the problem with, with political comedy, actually, is that you have to rewrite it. It can't just sit in your set and be, I've got things that have sat in my set for a long time that I make myself redevelop. Because I think we can yes. all get a bit ashamed of very old material, even if it still works. But it is difficult to redevelop those. Um, you know, and it's, it's one reason why Frankie works with writers, because it is difficult for a human being to constantly have new opinions about politics, which actually is the same kind of thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. So it's another reason why somebody yesterday asked why uh, he has so many jokes about what people look like, which which is one of my specialities. Though actually, not all of them are mine. But it's actually because the news stories will turn over so quickly. The one thing that's constant about Rishi Sunak is that he's small. Or the one thing that's constant about <laughs> Boris Johnson is that he looks like a variety of puddings. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's the other thing. It, it takes more work doing political comedy. <laughs> and I am essentially lazy. <laughs> I was reluctant to do political comedy for years, but it was more because I'm left-wing. And I just felt, oh, there's just so many left-wing comedians. I don't blame them, but I just think it's so hard to make it original. I've lately started to delve back into it a bit, but it's... I, when I think about it and thinking about what you're saying, it's more sort of social political, which perhaps is dates less badly. Do you know what I mean? Like the directions we're heading in. So it's less about who's the prime minister now and more like the new racists aren't old people. It's young square jawed American guys with podcasts. Do you know what I mean? That feels like it's, yeah. you know, might have more of a lifespan than say if I made a joke about uh, this week's, this fortnight's Tory prime minister. But Well, yeah. Most of my current set is about um, how I'm coming to understand my daughter's various pronouns and sexual identities and and the way that she and her friends describe themselves. She's 17, Um, which is political. It's just not uh, party political. Unfortunately, in a way, it's cross-party political. Everybody thinks teenagers are fucking idiots. Um, (laughs) And it is a weirdly radical thing to say on stage that I'm absolutely fine with however my daughter decides to describe herself. Uh, And also, like, even when I was younger, when I was starting in comedy and I did a lot of sex comedy and relationship comedy and people would tell me that I was facile and stupid and, um, and should do political, I remember at the time really feeling like being a young woman on stage talking about my version of my own sexuality was a political act. And at mm. the time, in the 90s, that would be laughed at. <laughs> like, not yeah. laughed with, laughed at. 
so it's quite interesting for me now to see the new generation of comedians, people like Sophie Duker and Olga Koch, for instance, who is very open about her sexuality and, and, and what she enjoys doing in bed. And they absolutely see it as a political act. And it's quite interesting that I almost feel rejuvenated by some of these younger comics, like, like Sean Doxy, who did um, her Edinburgh show this year on a pole, pole dancing. When she watched my solo show, I was really nervous because I knew that Sean was sort of young and bisexual and, and knew a lot of sex workers and understood the world that I was talking about from a much older perspective. And she actually really loved it. So that's been really rejuvenating, having this, this, this circle going of people going, yeah, just, just especially, you know, in, in, we're recording this at the moment, in the week after the Russell Brand um, uh, expose. Just the act of walking on stage as a woman in some places is a political act. And also just, just the fact of walking on stage as an older woman in some places is a political act. Yeah, it's insane, isn't it? Aidan, has anyone ever kissed your hand and told you you were brave after you've come off stage? <laughs> Only my mother. <laughs> you know, it's odd, isn't it, the way that people are like, a lady doing it. <gasps> yes, and the overreaction Still. you get when you manage to deal with a heckler. Mm. People will say that I'm amazing just because I managed to get a guy to shut up because they still think we're going to burst into tears. <laughs> they still mm. presume that if a guy says, oh, I don't, I want to talk to my mate, you're shit, that we're just going to cry. Yeah, but okay, <laughs> the then. We've got a pre-prepared line that we've said <laughs> eight million times to the twat in the front row. Like, oh, my God, <laughs> you're amazing. How on earth do you do that? <laughs> so witchcraft. Yeah, we actually need a round of applause walking to our car afterwards. That's the point. Mm -hmm. That's the point when we need a round of applause. And I sometimes also wish, if I've had a really storming gig, sometimes I also wish the MC would come on at the end and go, and Meryl had a really heavy period throughout that entire set. Extra <laughs> <laughs> round of applause for the blood loss. Historical hot or not. The format of Historical Hot or Not is that we will uh, pitch to each other, uh, and indeed to you, Meryl, a historical figure as each episode we do somebody different. We begin with a superficial assessment of our subject. We'll have a little look at their profile picture from the eTrust app uh, that is very real and not fictitious that so we just made up. Uh, then we'll find a little bit more about them, talk about their life and times. At the end, we'll say whether we would fuck them. Uh, if we would, they would end up on the your tap data strip. If not, we'll just ghost them. So, Aidan, this is your episode. And they are ghosts, so that is very appropriate. On Historical Hot and Art, Kath and I usually just go with whatever whim we decide on who to cover as subjects, almost entirely independently of each other as well. Kath will just say, I want to do Tesla. And I'll be like, sure, let's do Tesla um, or whatever. This is, I think, the first person that's been suggested by a guest because I messaged you on Twitter, uh, Meryl, and said, yeah. do you want to come on? And you straight off the bat went, yes, and let's do Anita Berber. And I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> she's, she's keen. Is that cheating? that I already am au fait with Anita Berber. Whatever rules we make up, we break anyway. And we uh, like your enthusiasm. And we'll get into it a bit later on, but there is a reason why you are historically interested in this period and Anita. If you both open your eTroth app, and by that I mean the Facebook Messenger group that we now share, <laughs> I have sent you the profile picture of, this is Anita, she is 29, and she is from Leipzig. So in terms of hotness, Meryl, what do we make of this? I've sent you a couple of photographs of Anita. Okay, so I'll say yes, but <laughs> I have an issue with this Wikipedia picture. In that it's in 
totally unrepresentative of how Anita Berber liked to look. So what Wikipedia have done here is they have chosen the most sweetly feminised picture of a woman who hated being both sweet and feminine. That's why I said the second one, because I did feel like it was a good photo in her in terms of quality, but it doesn't, yeah, you're right, it doesn't represent. Yeah, the second one you can't, again, I don't think it's that representative because it's rare that she would be wearing that many clothing, that much clothing. <laughs> I've got a picture of her here with her tits out and, um, yeah. Oh, oh, that's so rare to find those. On Etsy. If you read about her, apparently there were li- uh, lithographs painted of her nude, which makes me wonder, is this actually Anita Berber or someone sort of doing a mock Anita Berber, these naked photos? And I couldn't quite figure out if it was real. But the fact that Meryl has done research on this herself and she thinks it's rare that you'd find that. Maybe this is not her. Maybe this is someone sort of doing a mock-up of her later in life. I don't know. I think you should send the nudes anyway, Aidan. <laughs> sure. Um, I'm interested in the nudes. Hang on. Here we go. Whoever they are. N- <laughs> I mean, just look like her. <laughs> Looks a hell of a lot like her. Um, but definitely hot. And yes, she's hot in both of those photos. And she was so hot that in reality, she used to make herself less hot. That was <laughs> that's actually <laughs> like the point of her. She would try really hard to make herself less hot and couldn't do. I think she's really hot. I think it's uh, open and shut legs, really. Uh, very, very attractive. <laughs> very rarely <laughs> shut, as far as we can tell. I would. Meryl, she's white, isn't she? Because I think in all the photos, she looks like she's not white. But it's black and white, so it's hard to tell. But I'm pretty sure her ethnicity is white. But it's, it's quite hard to sort of decipher. I'm pretty sure her ethnicity is not mentioned to be anything other than white. Um, but Berber does sound like it comes from some sort of Turkish Eastern sort of area. And Germany did consider quite a wide range of previous ethnicities to still be white. So one of the myths about Germany when they started doing their racial purity rules was that they wouldn't accept people with dark hair and dark eyes. I mean, you know, look at Hitler. It's very dark and swarthy man. So they regarded people who were kind of Finnish regarded them as, as, as white and German and Aryan. G- Germany had taken in a lot of people from... My geography is awful, so I'm just going to say above <laughs> and sideways. <laughs> this is a history podcast, um, not a geography podcast. We'll, we'll forgive you. Certainly her nocturnal activities were from above and sideways. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we shall get into this. According to Wikipedia, Anita Berber was born 10th of June 1899 to Felix Berber, the first violinist with the Municipal Orchestra, and his wife, Anna Lucy Thiem, or Thiem, a cabaret singer and dancer. They divorced when she was four, and she was mainly raised by her grandmother in Dresden. So far, Berber sounds like a total middle-class theatre kid. Oboe practice on Tuesday, rehearsal for the school play on Wednesday, home at 8pm for the Ocado delivery. Meryl, Kath and I sometimes engage in mock class warfare, owing to my very middle-class background in the leafy bosom of Harrogate and her very working-class background as a street urchin in the cotton mills of Manchester. <laughs> Ear Aidan, I'm going to be late for the podcast because I've cut myself on the spinning Jenny again. That's the kind of thing I have to deal with on a regular basis. I told you not to tell people about that, Aidan. Uh, <laughs> bastard. How would you describe your class background, Meryl? Are you a double driveway diva or are you a council estate senorita? Well, th- this is a council estate. This is a council house. Uh, it's oh. an ex-council house, though, because my mum bought it when we were allowed to. My class is very mixed up and confusing. Um, I self-identify as working class and I've done quizzes online. Uh, I was certainly brought up with a working class 
culture in some ways, but I don't, I don't know what class I am. Um, because I live on an estate, I see actual working class people <laughs> out there and we commune with them. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's actually, I, I know in a way this is sort of a bit backwards, but we have mentioned that, um, that my, my mother was a Jewish refugee. Nazi Germany and it is one of the things that happens with refugee class and especially with the Jewish refugees in that my family were quite middle class my, my great-grandfather owned a big clothing store um, self-made uh, and also Germany itself has got a very snobby system even if you're not actually upper class like the, the, the shopkeepers call you gracious lady it translates as gracious lady <laughs> Um, and when my grandmother came here and people would call her Mrs. Zanka, she was horrified. Um, but they came over completely penniless because the uh, Germans had drained all of their accounts and sold all of their stuff. So my mum's life started from scratch and started from scratch in South London. But it started from scratch with a mother who was very uh, who wanted them to be dancers, wanted them to go to the theatre, wanted them to, to, to be in the cinema. And my father was Irish and his father was um, a headmaster. So he, again, had a very middle class sensibility. But I'd been through a horrific divorce and lost everything. So so it's, it's weird. I, I, I have. Middle class sensibility, working class money. I think that's what it is. There we go. I talk about class a lot on stage and it's sort of like in a mocking, ironic way, but I partly do it because class has broken down massively in weird ways in the oh. last few decades. Um, like if you met my little brother, you would probably think based on the way he presents himself and his economics as being working class, but no, no one would confuse me as being working class. Our parents are working class. I would. I would because we've got a northern accent. Uh, <laughs> oh that's a london thing he's outside the m25 he must be working class I, I just think it's broken down in weird ways my parents are working definitely working class like undeniably like my dad was one of 10 siblings living in a three-bedroom house in the northeast but i there's no way i'm not middle class based on the house i grew up in because they were uh to borrow a phrase from tony blair aspirational and upwardly mobile so yeah it, I, I i find it fascinating because like as you say like y- you sound like you're working class, but you don't sound fully confident in saying that you are. But I don't sound like I'm working class. <laughs> and also the voice comes from having a dad with an Irish accent who couldn't get work and a mum with a German accent who was arrested for spying as a child because she spoke wow. German wow. in Kent. Uh, so this voice is very much, you must have this voice, otherwise the British people will not give you jobs. What were you, what were you um, doing when she was arrested? She was playing on the beach. She was five. What? I mean, like I said, we kind of do this podcast backwards because we, 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 I keep referencing <laughs> play that I'm writing about the camp for enemy aliens that my mum was in, which is one of the reasons that I got very interested in the Weimar period and people like Anita Berber. But but we're doing it now. But yes. Do you mean literally she was five and got arrested for being a spy? Do you literally mean yeah. that? Yeah. No, until I started researching the play, we thought she kind of meant she was sort of arrested. But when I started researching the play, yes, she was arrested. Um, in, a, in the way that 10% of all the Jewish refugees were rounded up and arrested on various nefarious charges to put them in a safe place to be analysed. But what so, was she doing? Also... Was she making a sandcastle out of, like, microfilm? Like, why did they think a five-year-old was a spy? She was playing on the beach with her brother, and they were speaking German. And the thing is, because it was Kent, that <laughs> They're was idiots. Dangerous. <laughs> I, well, well, what they are in Kent, if you go back, is their invasion 
obsessives. Yeah. And you've got to look at the time period. Like, people think it is mad that my mum was speaking German on a beach in Kent and somebody called the police. Whereas at the moment, right now, Nigel Farage goes down to beaches in Kent and films children playing on them in terms to say this is not safe. So mm -hmm. it's not mad. It's still happening. And, and that was during a war, so it's actually more understandable. Yeah. Um, so it was considered that they would um, bring torches at night and wave the, the U-boats in. Pretty much when they rounded up 10% of the Jewish refugees, uh, pretty much anybody who was in the coast, so nearly all of the Kent refugees, most of the London refugees, most of the Liverpool refugees, anywhere where you could be in a particularly dangerous spot where if you weren't a refugee, if you were lying, you could go, yay, come in. It's not taught, is it? But just the British, it was literally just, oh, you're Italian, get in prison for, <laughs> for five years. Oh, well, the Italian thing. Have you interviewed Stefano Paolini? No. Okay, so if you want to do an Italian's being rounded up in the Second World War special, <laughs> Stefano Paolini's your man. He knows more about it than anybody. Uh, but yeah, they, they, they just, they, they literally emptied the whole of Soho. Italians joined <laughs> the war and, and the British government just went to Soho and you couldn't get a bowl of spaghetti for love nor money. <laughs> yeah, I was reading a book. It's about how um, the sort of West End dealt with the war, yeah. you know, like all of the posh hotels. And it was, again, it was literally like, you try and get a chef at the Savoy. Like all of the big hotels were struggling <laughs> because they're like, every person who can cook is Italian or German and we've just put them in prison for being Italian or German yeah. indefinitely uh, for no reason other than they're Italian or German. That's how you get them, these people, to be pro-immigration. You just have lots of cottons mm. going, what do you mean I can't get a fucking bolognese? Suddenly they're very pro-Italian immigration. Berber studied dance at Emile Jacques Delcroze's school in Hellerau and ballet in Berlin with Rita Sicchetto. By the age of 16, Berber made her debut as a cabaret dancer, and in 1917, she was working as a fashion model for Die Dame, the first illustrated magazine in Germany to cater to the interests of women. Uh, Meryl and Kath, do either of you know what the first women's magazine in the UK was? The early magazines were just called things like Woman. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> my mum used to read a magazine called Woman. Yeah. Well, Die Dame is presumably the same right. translation. Does it still exist now, the first women's magazine? Yes. Hello. <laughs> What's your guess? The lady now? would like to believe it's the first one. It's very demure and sort of set, still set in the 1930s. The lady always has loads of adverts about, you know, how to get somebody to comb down your horse. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you're both wrong. The first magazine, the first women's magazine in the UK was Women's Health in 1137. And, uh, 1137? Yeah, and these were some of the features... Achieve the perfect buoyancy for that dreaded witchcraft accusation. Eleanor of Aquitaine on how she regained her pre-pregnancy weight. Rivet the perfect chainmail vest for his upcoming battle. Uh, why women become invisible at 19. <laughs> Ten tips on how to gut a pig without losing your femininity. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting reading. You can read that. I've read that edition. Yeah, we'd have to go down to the uh, British Library to check that out. According to Kelly Hill in Daily Art magazine, interwar Germany until the rise of the Nazis was a time of economic instability, loose censorship and artistic creativity. The cabaret scene exploded with risque performances and by the age of 20, Berber was performing nude in many of these cabarets. So Meryl, you've alluded to your writing it. Is it a play or a book? I feel like I'm doing charade. <laughs> <The play. laughs> You're writing a play about your grandmother's 
Isn't your grandmother and your mother's escape from Nazi Germany? And just as a follow-up question, am I right in thinking timeline-wise, so your grandmother would have grown up in the Weimar Republic, is that right? Yes, she was born around... I've had to write all the timelines down, because not only is my geography bad, my maths is as well. So she was about <laughs> 1901. And she was actually uh, quite old when she had my mother. She's born within two years of Anita Berber in that case. And... Yeah. It's interesting that she was old because it means it, it's quite rare that you would meet someone now whose grandmother was an adult by the time the Weimar Republic started. She was an older parent for the times. My mum was an older parent and for her time. And then I'm an older parent. But now <laughs> it's kind of normal. I was literally I was the youngest person in my maternity yoga class when I was 35. So um, <laughs> I don't recommend it. But uh, but yeah, it means that when I talk about my grandmother, I'm talking about someone who was born in 1901. Yeah. Wow. So interesting. Her dad, when you're talking about that period, so um, her dad ran a big women's clothing boutique in Dusseldorf. And he was the either the first person in Dusseldorf or the first person in Germany to put a swimming costume in the window. And it was scandalized. Yeah. Um, so, you know... It's one thing I've come to think about more and more while I'm writing my play, that if you see a 40-year-old refugee in a documentary all huddled up, that person would have been 20 during the Weimar period and in a tiny little slip of chiffon having bisexual sex with various passers-by. <laughs> and so it's quite odd that we think of them, like you, you read stories about the internment camps where there was uh, convenience lesbian, uh, lesbianism and convenience homosexuality. And you're like, well... A, now, even convenience bisexuality is termed bisexuality. If you want to do it, then you are bisexual. But also, I don't see any reason why those things were because of convenience and not just mm. because that was the culture that they'd grown up with. Yeah, I think it, the saddest part of this period is how free it was. If, if you sort of get on it, in that like <laughs> you could just be who you are and like, can you imagine being in yeah. Germany at the time, sort of gay, Jewish, going yeah. out, getting your tits out. That's who you are. Everybody knows. There's no hiding who you are. Yeah. And then the Nazis come in. And just whenever I hear about this period of time, I always just have that awful sense of dread because you know what's coming. And if everybody yeah. knows that about you, then you can't hide that. And then you're the first to have the knock on the door. Oh, it just makes me feel so sad but happy that it existed. Weimar Berlin was one of the most diverse places on the planet. Mm -hmm. It sounds great. In my play, one of, the, one of the characters said, how could this happen in Berlin? Mm. And that's something I think a lot of us forget, despite the existence of Cabaret, the film and the musical. But I think the problem with Cabaret is that we don't see any of the lead characters being rounded up and put in concentration camps. It's always other. It's not the dancer's... There's not, I don't think there's a scene where they come in and round up all the dancers and the orchestra and, and, and Christopher Isherwood for being gay. And, and so we kind of separate it. We, we, we look at Cabaret and we go, there were all these parties and then the people having the parties watched the Nazis rounding people up rather than the Nazis were rounding up the parties and that also being a huge contributing factor. One of the films that Anita Berber was in, which is called Different from the Rest, and it was made in conjunction with um, a sex clinic that was huge. I think it was in Berlin. Again, my geography. 
they were being very open and they were doing a lot of research into homosexuality and actually the first trans surgery happened mm. in Germany and if you ever look up um, the biggest book burning the biggest and first book burning was the library of the Institute of Sexology uh, it's 20,000 books of sexual and gender science and history some of it first person testimony that just does not exist so when we say now all of this tre all of this trendy like transness and bisexualityness and everything it's just new it's just new it's not new 20,000 volumes of it were destroyed wow mm -hmm. fascinating you hear this uh, this narrative of it's not the normal way to be to, to mm. be between genders and to be experimental in sex is not the normal way to be. and actually historically it's been way more standard globally to be curious and and by gender than it is to be buttoned down into what we have in our society so the nazis wiped them all out and wiped, wiped all the history about it out which i think is mm -hmm. more important because the nazis only you know they only wiped them out in that area of europe but yeah. before that we had the empire so before that the empire was going into countries countries like india where they were quite sexually free and open until we arrived mm. sometimes i think we need we really need to look at white white european people why we have such an issue with sex like yeah. it seems to be endemic genetic issue with people expressing themselves sexually so yeah every hundred years we go into somebody's country we, we beat them all up for being expressive with their sexuality we get rid of all the evidence that it existed yeah and then we go oh look at this new thing this 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 new craze for transgender and then you, people are oh, it's so backwards, isn't it, that it's illegal to be gay there? And it's like, the only reason that it's illegal yes. to be gay in these countries is because we went there and made it illegal yeah. to be gay. Yeah, there's some statistic oh. about how many countries where it's illegal to be gay are former, former empires yeah. of Britain, former colonies. Yeah, like you it's, can't. It's like a massively high statistic. Yeah, you can't just wash your hands of that, can you, at the end? And just be like, look how barbaric and backwards they are. Like, we were. They were forwards. <laughs> How much data do you have on your actual grandmother? Are you going by on like anecdotes that have been passed down or do you actually have access to any kind of historical record or artifacts about her? Some of it's anecdotes. Uh, some of it is getting in touch with people who found various documents. And then some of it is sort of piecing evidence together to make informed presumptions. So looking at the timeline and looking at the type of people who are being rounded up looking at the fact that my family were in the internment camp for way longer than most of the other families and some documentation about that um and photographs now i've got photographs of my grandmother in a see-through mini skirt with a fur coat on smoking a cigarette with her foot up on a motorbike that's so cool and also my, my, my aunt her first cousin told us uh, that they used to share boyfriends. They used to very commonly wow. cross date. Nice. Um, and she knew that it was love with my grandfather because my grandmother wouldn't share him. Wow. <laughs> That's so cool. I feel bad that I tricked you into a fake women's magazine. <laughs> yeah, we feel, we feel bad as well. You actually both sounded like you really wanted to know, so I have found out. <laughs> <laughs> According to Catherine Hughes's Guardian article, Women's Magazines Down the Ages, this is actually way earlier than I would have thought. The first women's magazine in Britain was the Ladies' Mercury from 1693. 
And if you go to the Wikipedia page, there's a screen grab of the Ladies' Mercury. It was a periodical that was designed specifically for women readers. Yeah. Nice bit of homework for everyone to go and look at. Women who could read at the time. I can't imagine it was many. It was just female <laughs> monarchs. It was only the Queen that could actually read it, but still. <laughs> but even then, when was Queen Anne? Queen Anne's later than that, isn't she? Yeah, Queen she's, Anne couldn't read. She's about to, really? Oh, really? Yeah, she's about 10 <laughs> years later, I think. According to openculture.com, Berber acted in 27 films, including work by Fritz Lang. Uh, she, and according to Connolly, she appeared in the film that you've just talked about, Meryl. I think it's translated differently in different sources. I've got different from the others, but do you call it different from the rest? And my brain is the adult brain of a 52-year-old menopausal woman. So <laughs> I would I would double, I would fact check every single thing I say. <laughs> no, there was definitely, when I researched, there was definitely more than one title. Um, this was a pioneering film in which Conrad Veidt, played the first clearly homosexual lead character in cinema history. Because of these films, going back to Berber, you can actually watch footage of her on dancing on YouTube, uh, which is quite a cool thing. Listeners, I will put a link in the show notes so you can, so you can go and watch her tippy-toeing around the nightclubs of Berlin in the early 1920s. According to Richard Evans, The Coming of the Third Reich, Berber's dances, which had names such as cocaine and morphium, broke boundaries with their androgyny and total nudity. According to Karl Topfer's book, Empire of Ecstasy, which draws on choreographer Joe Jenkins' eyewitness observations, he describes cocaine as primal, tragic, anguished, hypnotic. Berber's dance dramatised the intense ambiguity involved in linking the ecstatic liberation of the body to nudity and rhythmic consciousness. The dance tied ecstatic experience to an encounter with vice and horror. Three stars, Brian Logan. Um, <laughs> that was an in-joke for comedians. Sorry, anyone who's listening to this podcast for historical purposes. Anita was, had a lot of notoriety around her. According to Mel Gordon in The Seven Addictions and Five Professions of Anita Berber, she responded to the audience's heckling with show-stopping obscenities and indecent provoca provocations. Berber had been known to spit brandy on them and stand naked on their tables, <laughs> dousing herself in wine while simultaneously urinating, it was not long before <laughs> the entire cabaret one night sank into groundswell of shouting, screams and laughter. Anita jumped off the stage in a fuming rage, grabbed the nearest champagne bottle and smashed it over a businessman's head. Kath, have you ever gone mental at a corporate? No, but oh my God, next time I am going to go and piss on someone's table naked whilst pouring their drink over me. Comedians <sighs> always talk about corporates being awful, but they've got nothing on Berber. <laughs> nothing on Berber. You know when people say, oh, you can't do that anymore? And they always just mean like a carry-on film. <laughs> like, yeah. you, can't, you can't do what I need to Berber did anymore. You can't urinate on the front row and, and not <laughs> and get booked again. <laughs> do, I think, would you need to have public liability insurance? <laughs> Planning on doing that, or do you reckon you could get away with it and just be like, "Listen, mate, if you didn't do a risk assessment, that is not on me." I doubt she could afford it in the Weimar period. A yeah. loaf of bread was ten million pounds. That's true. <laughs> Berber was, according to Wikipedia, scandalously androgynous. According to Hill, Berber sat for a series of lithographs by the artist Charlotte Berend Corinth. All of them depict 20-year-old Berber comfortable in her naked body, confidently taking up space, an embodiment of the new woman. That, this is why I, th I think those new done Google image search might be, not be her, because this seems notable that she had the lithographs done. But the thing is, if there's actually photographs of a nude, surely that would be even more significant than the lithographs, but I couldn't find evidence of it. Anyway, uh, there were rumours of affairs with the similarly androgynous Marlene Dietrich, 
Anita was banned from Vienna for five years for her explicit performances. Meryl, how hardcore are you? How, how do you compare to Anita's hedonism, nudity and general effluencing on businessmen? I haven't weed on a businessman. <laughs> I have pretended to wee in a private message for a fan's birthday. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> so that's as close as I've got. Everything, everything. I mean, these days it's all virtual, isn't it? You don't have to really do anything. I'm never nude. Um... <laughs> Tobias suffered a rare psychological affliction of never being able to be completely naked. And that's mainly because I've got a glitchy boob. <laughs> Can you, you need to elaborate on the glitchy boob. I don't like elaborating on the glitchy boob. <laughs> Um, Not on record. I feel very uncomfortable talking about it, even publicly, but that is the reason I'm not new. And, and every now and then I say to my husband, shall I get some surgery on the glitchy boob so it looks like the other boob? And he always says to me that he doesn't want me to because then I would be naked all the time. And he's got a point. <laughs> I, I probably would be. To be honest, there would be topless photos of me everywhere if it was uh, palatable. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's, that's kept me... Um, that's kept me fully clothed really i think glitchy boob is an interesting way to describe a boob because glitchy makes it sound like when you got the boob you were under the impression that it would pick up medium wave but actually it can only <laughs> pick up long wave <laughs> according to charlie Connolly and the new european there were stories of how she would sashay into the lobby of berlin's exclusive adlon hotel wearing nothing but a fur stole her pet monkey clinging to her neck and an antique silver <laughs> pendant filled with cocaine <laughs> at her breast. <laughs> oh, my God. I love her. I want to be her. She didn't just push the envelope. She pushed an entire shop of WH Smiths. <laughs> <laughs> drug use. Berber was a regular drug user with addictions to cocaine, opium, and morphine. According to Connolly, her favourite stimulant was a bowl filled with chloroform and ether that she'd stir with a white rose and eat the petals. <laughs> It's just so mad. It is insane, it. isn't it? Probably with a monkey on her shoulder at the same time. Because <laughs> she had a fucking monkey. No, she did die. You have to point out she did die at 29. So, like, you know, put a bit of warning underneath. Please do not attempt any of this at home. No, but given the world events, probably for the best. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Just have yeah. a great time and die at 29 rather than having to go through war. Yeah, rather yeah. than having to convince uh, Camp Garth that she should be allowed to take a monkey in with her. She's just died before you <laughs> even get to that point. Kath, what's the most decadent way you've got high? I don't know if I should be talking about this, given that I've got a, a day job <laughs> still in, a, in the NHS. And uh, uh, But yeah, I've definitely drunk a lot of, um, eaten a lot of heroin roses. It's chloroform. <laughs> it wasn't even heroin. Heroin was too linear for any to purpose. It's chloroform. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Anita was married thrice, according to Andrea Coppervilla, who's who in contemporary gay and lesbian history. She left her first hubby for a woman named Susie Wanowski and later became part of the Berlin lesbian scene. In 1922, she married Sebastian Drost, who earned a living as a naked dancer, choreographer and expressionist poet. This guy seems to be like the male equivalent of, of Anita Berber. The two jointly published a book called Dancers of Vice, Horror and Ecstasy. According to Connolly, their spiralling addiction led to the pair missing shows, breaking contracts and accepting multiple bookings, leading to their expulsion from the International Artists' Union. 
being barred from union venues forced Berber and Drost abroad, reducing their income and prompting Drost to disappear to the US on the proceeds of Berber's pawned jewels, leaving her practically destitute. It all gets very sad now. I know we've all thought she's like this cool bohemian uh, lesbian lady who's getting high off cocaine and rose petals. But uh, Can I say something before it gets sad? Please do. Do you know what Sebastian Drost's real name was? No. His real name was Willie Knobloch. Oh, my God. <laughs> Why did he not keep that one? Exactly. Especially given his job. Willie Knobloch was far more appropriate than Sebastian Drost. <laughs> I appreciate as well, given the legal implications, that it would be difficult. Being married thrice is not easy, is it? Unless those partners were to die or something, in which case you don't have to go for all the paperwork to divorce them. You don't have to go through the paperwork for a funeral. Probably worse. I don't know. Depends on how much you liked him. But I just, I do also love that trope of like a, a showgirl in a fur coat talking about her many husbands that she's had whilst yeah. like casually smoking a cigarette. Like I'm very happy in my current relationship and want that to be the only marriage that I have, if he ever asked. But <laughs> I, I also, in an alternative reality, want to be that person who's been married eight times. <laughs> Six of them have died mysteriously. It would be cool. According to Hill, they embarked on a, this is her and Hoffman, they embarked on a tour around Europe ending in Zagreb where she was jailed for several weeks after personally offending the King of Yugoslavia with a nude dance <laughs> performance. Um, let's make a pact. <laughs> if any of the three of us ever get to do stand-up at the Royal Variety performance, we do it naked and we do time for it. Mm-hmm. Can I wear my bra? <laughs> you can yeah. wear your bra. <laughs> yeah, just make sure that your minge is like twice as present. Okay. <laughs> it, it is always twice as present. I'm Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from her addiction to narcotic drugs, Berber was also an alcoholic. In 1928, at the age of 29, she suddenly gave up alcohol completely, but died later the same year. According to Gordon, she was diagnosed with severe tuberculosis while abroad. She returned to Germany and died in a Kreuzberg hospital on the 10th of November 1928, although rumour has it that she died surrounded by empty morphine syringes. I want to go out like that. Rumour has it that Aidan died surrounded by 12 boxes of Twining's Sleep Easy Infusion. <laughs> Berber was buried in a pauper's grave in St. Thomas Cemetery in Berlin. I did most of the bibliography as I was doing it, but we also referred to S. Funkenstein's Anita Berber colon Imagining a Weimar Performance Artist, which was in Women's Art Journal in 2005. Meryl O'Rourke. Mm-hmm. Based on everything you've heard in this episode, would you bang Anita Berber? Should she go on the bio-tapthatistry? I am not bisexual, so for that reason, and that reason only, I would not. Also, she does sound slightly terrifying. Mm. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be convinced I wouldn't catch, like, catch something germ-wise. <laughs> But also just, you know, fall on a needle or something. <laughs> get, get, get attacked by the monkey. Um, yeah. It doesn't seem very safe. But I would certainly want to watch her shows. I'd probably get off watching her. So am I, am I able to get off manually whilst watching a show? Uh, I'm sure she would very much welcome this. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's Weimar Germany, baby. You might have to urinate on a businessman before you do that. But otherwise, it should be allowed. I would be fine with that if it, if it was acceptable. The only reason I don't do it, you know, I would urinate on businessmen if I got booked again in comedy clubs. A corporate's a corporate. Uh, I'm surprised by that, Mel. <laughs> I thought you'd say yes. 
um, because you proposed it so quickly to me, I thought, oh, this is going to be an open and shut legs, as I say. I think Meryl's definitely going to open, but you haven't. Being a man, you don't understand the concept of realising somebody is sexually attractive without actually wanting to fuck them. That is absolutely true. Yes, I don't understand that. <laughs> I'm confused. So I knew you were talking about people who are very sexual, um, but I'm able to appreciate somebody's sexuality without wanting to uh, enter my fingers into any of their orifices (laughs) but I think also that's part of um I have come to realize over a while that I'm not bisexual um and there are definitions of bisexuality which are that if you enjoy looking at somebody of the other sex of the same sex I mean and are aroused you are bisexual I don't like to count myself as bisexual because a I think like it's quite easy to be aroused by pretty women because pretty women are pretty but also I don't have that lifestyle, like I'm not being discriminated against. I don't have to explain awkward things to the family. Um, I've got my husband and he's there and that's that. So, yeah, I can appreciate her without wishing to touch her. Fair enough. A very mature answer for a lewd minx, might I say. Kath, <laughs> would you uh, would you bang Berber? Should you go on the biotech latestry? Um, I think that we use, saying that we'd bang someone is just showing respect for the, the person in the terms of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, that being said, yeah, I would. Um, <laughs> n- not in a, a in a respectful way and disrespectful way. Um, I, <laughs> I think I admire her greatly. I would follow her wherever she goes. We operate in self-preservation, don't we? Like, I will be like, I'm not going to eat that cake because it looks great, but... It'll be bad for me. I can't eat cake every day. And I make my decisions like that. And whilst I do understand that addiction is a terrible thing, uh, it's an illness, I also admire people who are like, I don't give a fuck. If I die, I die. Selma and Louise, it baby. You know, just like, I'm I'm doing what I want. I'm here for a good time, not a long time. And I, 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 lo- I do love that somewhat troubling aspect of her. And that does seem quite interesting as well, that you don't get reports of her being very ill before she had the tuberculosis and died. It's Mm. not like, like when they say she stopped drinking, I've not found anything which says after a period of illness connected to her alcoholism, she stopped drinking. Mm -hmm. It's, It's literally just lots of stories of debauchery and then she died. Yeah. Seemingly relatively quickly as well. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think she is hot and I absolutely would have sex with her. But it's interesting reading about the tragedy of her life sort of takes away from it because it's very fun reading about all the mad shit she did in the sort of hedonistic days of the Weimar Republic. But you knowing you're all bowling towards her death. But that's this podcast. Aidan, you're the person that's made the rule that everyone who fans <laughs> on this podcast has to be dead. So I think that is, sorry, that is true, actually. Say that. <laughs> it's completely self-defeating. Uh, yeah, I would have sex with her. What I was going to say was, drug-using, free-spirited hedonists have never been particularly attracted to me. It's not the kind of woman I attract. I think those people who take three or four different kinds of drugs every day, they can smell the chamomile on me. They're not interested on me. <laughs> You are wearing a beige jacket with a beige shirt and a beige... Is that a beige tie? No, it's just the shirt is just buttoned up. <laughs> it's a salmon shirt with a sort of uh, oh, brownie, brownie jacket. But they are still the same skin tone as your skin and your beard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> Were it not for the buttons, it could be nude. <laughs> Basically, long-winded way. I, I think I have to say yes, because as Kath said, 
the yes, I would bang them is more of a sign of respect for a combination of their attractiveness and their personality and what they mean to the times. And uh, I think she's very cool and I think she's very hot, so it has to be a yes. So between me and Kath, it's a yes. Stick me as a yes because I would definitely come thinking about her. Okay. You know, I think in terms That's of, I think enough. all three of us are aligned that we would be her acolytes and slaves and would spontaneously ejaculate whatever we have to ejaculate whilst watching her perform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah as long as she's not pissing on a businessman that might be a turn off for me but everything else yes not me yeah not me <laughs> meryl when is you when's this play you're writing when's it out when's it published oh god knows <laughs> <laughs> at the moment we have I, I i've got some money from a jewish festival which is next october so at the moment we have a date which is definitely happening that something is being seen October 2024. Whether that is a live play reading or whether we get some more, yeah, it's dependent on money, whether it will actually be staged. Okay. Some, something will be seen in October in North London at the Art Stepper. Excellent. That sounds so cool. I really want to come. I do have a solo show that is on Next Up called Vanilla, which people can currently watch. And it is about my thoughts on sexuality and modern sexuality and whether we are being, whether whether it's a lie that we're constantly told that sex is powerful. Mm-hmm. Next Up is, uh, for listeners, it's like the Netflix of stand-up. It's just lots of different stand-up yeah. shows. And, uh... It's a streaming service. Um, you can get some of them on ITVX, but I'm not allowed on ITVX. I, th- I was worried because it was because I was too edgy. Oh my God, Meryl, you're talking about sex and sexual assault and this is too edgy. But actually, apparently, it's because they used a lower-grade camera when they filmed me. Oh, no. they they use their cheap camera yeah you can just go next up next up comedy i think it is uh google it and um as far as i know the first month is free so you can binge Mm -hmm. you can watch me 30 times for free (laughs) excellent (laughs) uh the subscription yeah Right, thank you very much for coming on, Meryl. You've been a great guest. You're very much in the spirit of the podcast, which aims to be informative, but horny as fuck. And I think you Mm -hmm. managed to bridge that divide quite well. I think that's kind of my personality. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Another thing we could do is, we could just do someone else uh, next year. If you want to come on again, we could just do someone else and then we could release that in time for the actual release of uh, the play. There's many options. You're welcome to come back. Well, we could talk about my grandmother, but that would be weird, wouldn't it? Not for me, not for Kath. (laughs) Would we shag your (laughs) thanks for listening please spread the word in the podcast we put videos on instagram share them to your stories retweet our promotional tweets tell your friends about the podcast thanks for coming on meryl we will uh hopefully have you back yeah as we always say spread the word spread your legs and remember it's not what's on the outside it's what's on the inside of the coffin that counts (laughs) bye You have been listening to Historical Hot or Not, written and created by Aidan McCaffrey and Catherine Mather. The podcast art was by our good friend Richard Todd, and our theme music by excellent musician and also good friend David Eagle. We also have music by Ergo Fismas, Lasser License from the Free Music Archive. If you've enjoyed us and you would like to donate to the cause, we would love you to do that also. You can find us at ko-fi.com forward slash hotnotpod and you can download bonus episodes of Historical Hot or Not from Acast Plus. The link is available on our link tree, linktree.com forward slash hotnotpod. Bye!